Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sihle Bolani. As we dig deeper in our conversations around race and gender, the underrepresentation of black women in leadership at a business and government level is impossible to ignore, though many do try. One of the major problems with underrepresentation is that it allows the status quo to remain by perpetuating the silencing of underrepresented voices, which leads to their needs, their rights, and their humanity being erased. Joining me for today's conversation is Nadia Theodore, Consul General of Canada to the Southeast USA, a role she's been in for almost three years now. Prior to her appointment, uh, Ms. Theodore served as Executive Director to Canada's Deputy Minister of International Trade at Canada's Permanent Mission to the World Trade Organization and at Canada's Permanent Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. With over 20 years of experience in the Canadian Federal Public Service, Consul General Theodore has built a reputation for forging strong partnerships with government and business leaders and building strong multidisciplinary teams. Ms. Theodore has made advancing inclusion in the workplace a personal priority. She is committed to making sure that the public service is included in the global conversation on building inclusive teams, including at senior levels. Ms. Theodore, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation. I'm so excited to be with you and excited for our conversation. So, I mean, I've seen you... Obviously, I discovered you through Instagram, one of my best discoveries, I must say. Um, and I absolutely love the content that you shared because you're so committed to, you know, advancing the conversations around diversity and inclusion. But before we get into that meet, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Absolutely. So I, as you rightly said um, in the introduction, I am currently the head of Canada's diplomatic mission in the Southeast United States. Mm. So I am a Canadian diplomat, currently based in Atlanta, Georgia, but representing Canada across six states of the Southeast United States. Mm. And most of my career up until now has been in the Canadian federal civil service. Mm -hmm. And I have sort of worked my way around the federal civil service, joined Global Affairs Canada, which is the, the federal department that houses our diplomatic service um, in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And and then and then went went from there and really found myself in a space where I started in trade policy and trade negotiations and then moved up and onward into more core diplomacy functions and then and then here i am today mm. and what has your journey been like as you know a black woman who is in public service and you know navigating that environment yeah you know i i have to say in all honesty that Probably it wasn't until I would say about four years ago that I really started to turn my mind intentionally and a little bit more concretely on what it has really meant for me to be a black female 
and more importantly, a black executive in the federal public service mm. and in the diplomatic corps in particular. Mm. Um, and that's because, you know, I joined the diplomatic service in a little bit of an unusual way than most. So most people in Canada's diplomatic service join at the very early stages of their career. So they come out of a university and they write um, the diplomatic corps exams and then they join and they work their way up that way. Mm. And I joined the diplomatic service later on in my career, having worked in several other government departments and then, like I said, had done trade negotiations. Mm. Um, and, you know, when I joined, when I became a quote-unquote diplomat, um, and then went out on diplomatic posting, mm. I got a lot of, you know, a lot of the usual, what we now know the language for, microaggressions mm. around why I was there and how I got to be there and whether I deserved to be there. Mm. And, you know, I really had to start to think about Nadia, what does it mean for you to be in these spaces? Mm. What do you want to use your space <laughs> mm. to create? Mm. Um, which and, and doing that required me to really dig down in, and, and think about what it what it means. And so for me, it really has meant first and foremost, an opportunity, mm. an opportunity for me to sit at the table and take what is offered at the table unapologetically, mm -hmm. which has come with some work. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's also meant for me learning to be kind to myself, mm. learning that some days being the only one sitting around a table will feel very heavy. Mm. And it's not every day that you can be the cheerleader for your people. Mm. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not every day that you have the energy to come with all that you have. Mm. And that's okay. You know, some days you just need to, as I say, sit on your couch <laughs> with mm. your book, so to speak, mm. um, and not be out there in the world doing it all for everybody um, and being the voice of your of, of your people, so that's what it's it's meant for me. Those those two things most mostly. Um, you know, that's actually such a a valid um, point because I know I struggle with this as well, and it's something that I have to consciously do. This, I guess, the the conflict of, am I doing enough? But I also need time for myself. I need to take care of myself, but when I'm taking care of myself, then I think, oh, but then I feel like I'm letting people down by not responding to messages, by not speaking up on certain issues. And I've been feeling that particularly with everything that's been going on since the pandemic hit. And, you know, everybody kind of just being, you know, uh, going through the most right now. And it's kind of given this heightened sense of responsibility for so many people who do this work, whether it's a public service or whether it's work that's in advocacy, um, I've certainly felt a lot of pressure during this period in particular to show up um, and I've had to really force myself to, you know, kind of put that, you know, um, limit myself in that space and 
pull more into myself. Yeah, and you know, I think it's so important and you're so right, especially now where we feel this exciting sense and hopeful sense of momentum around making real long-lasting change Mm. across all sectors and all spaces in the workplace Mm. that you know for us especially black women I would say um who already felt a sense of responsibility Mm. you know I am one of the only senior black women in the Canadian diplomatic corps. Mm. And so, you know, the amount of emails and messages and requests for mentorship and even just the thank yous, you know, from people saying, you know, I saw you on on Twitter or Instagram and you're such an inspiration. Sometimes it can feel like a lot of pressure to keep going, as you said, Mm. and a lot of pressure to answer every message promptly Mm. uh, and to mentor every young woman or, or man um, and everything in between that that you that might reach out to you. Um, and it really is so important, again, for us to remember that it is actually okay for us to sit and be still and do for us. Mm. It, it is it is a hard thing for me, especially, and I suspect for others listening, but it is so important. Uh, for us to remember that that boundaries apply to everybody mm, <laughs> right even yeah. those that we want to help yeah we, we can still have boundaries with those people absolutely um and the other thing that you mentioned that i really want to go back to is that you know where you're um where people are questioning whether you're deserving (laughs) according to them of being in a certain position or you know having certain accesses um that are available to you and for a lot of black women in the workplace this is something that they struggle with constantly being questioned being undermined um you know being excluded or ignored how were you able to assert yourself and kind of just own the space that you're in, you know, and show up as yourself authentically, you know, within that type of environment. Yeah, so I will admit that that has been difficult and I have gotten better at it with time. Mm. (laughs) Uh, And for me, I think that it was a combination of, especially when I started in the current role that I'm in now three years ago, it was a combination of, in all honesty, just being very exhausted with trying to be somebody who I was not, mm-hmm. number one. And also a realization that the people who don't want you to win, mm. the people who are hell-bent on making you feel like you don't belong and making you feel that you're there for other reasons than your skills and talents um, will always feel that way. Mm. And there's actually nothing that you can do to change them. Mm. Uh, Very, very little that you can do to change them. The only thing that you can do is to change how you decide to react and how you decide to process. Mm. Uh, And that was a hard lesson for me, you know, um, 
it was a hard lesson for me, but once I got my head around that, it was much easier for me to show up in spaces and places in the way that I best knew how mm. and to be okay with that and to and to be not just okay, to realize that that was actually what was needed. Mm. And that was actually what was doing the most service for Canada, which is my job right now. Mm. Um, and 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 so I have really sunk into that even more um, over the past several years, and and it has served me very very well. Mm, absolutely, I'm glad to hear that, and I think it's. You know, it is really one of those things that's kind of just an ongoing thing. I don't think we ever get to a point where you've got the formula figured out because we deal with so many different people, so many different layers um, of resistance, you know, uh, throughout our journeys. And, you know, it's, it, you mentioned, um, you know, about uh, getting to a point where you no longer wanted to try to, you know, pretend to be somebody that you're not and the issue of code switching is something that black women struggle with a lot um, and I know I've certainly experienced it as well you know um, having to show up as a version of yourself that is deemed to be more acceptable or less threatening and so many other things because we all understand even if it's not said out loud it may not be part of a policy within an organization but we all understand the nuances around black womanhood and the fact that intersectionality is not embraced within organizations you know mm-hmm. so how ha- what 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 does intersectionality in terms of diversity in the workplace uh look like for you and what are some of the things that you've observed um within that context yeah that's a great question you know one of the things that i have observed and I think that more people are beginning to realize over the past several weeks is that this idea of a win for one being a win for all is a fallacy Mm. (laughs) Um, and can become really dangerous if we are not careful. Mm. And in fact, in the workplace, if we are truly committed to having a workplace that is representative of the societies that we live and work in, which is the goal, Mm. um, then we have to be forever vigilant of performative progress and progress that holds up one specific group um, as as indication that we have arrived and that we're done Mm -hmm. and now we can get on to real business you know we've checked that diversity box we're good Mm -hmm. um and i think that that happens and i think listen that happens even when we talk about um getting more black people black women um in particular in boardrooms and in executive leadership positions Mm -hmm. because we forget that there is there is intersectionality we forget that there is intersectionality even amongst people who identify as women right. and as black women mm. and you know that like you said before the layers uh, <laughs> are many and yeah. deep and i think that it's all of our responsibilities to stay vigilant to that because if we don't 
uh, we ourselves as black women can really forget um, to include our um, LGBTQ, queer, um, and other gender identifying black people in our quest for inclusion and diversity and equity. Mm. Um, And I think that that would be a mistake. You know, I think that if we want to be somewhere different than we are today in 20 years from now or 10 years from now, we really need to make sure that we do things differently. Mm. Um, And I certainly have been trying to kind of wrap my head around that to, to remind myself that yes, I am a black woman and I identify as a black woman, um, but there are many layers of being a black person and even a black woman in the workplace. Mm. And I need to recognize that even when I am trying to advance what I believe to be the initiative. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And um, so for you, I mean, obviously you're very involved with, you know, conversations around how we build inclusive teams you know um and so in practice what does that look like i mean we've all been seeing (laughs) so many brands and organizations speaking about you know black lives matter and you know we stand with the black community and we are all for diversity And there's definitely, <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know how many times I've rolled my eyes in the past few weeks, which is just like, oh my gosh, can this just end? Because it's it's so easy for organizations to go and brief an ad agency or a PR agency to put together some social media campaign that will somehow make them feel like, you know, they're doing something or to kind of protect them from any reputational risk from not seeing anything but we all know that the real work is far from actually taking place um so what is it that leaders actually need to start thinking about or start doing within their organizations if they actually want to walk the talk yeah i listen i love this question because i i honestly feel of two minds. Mm. So my first mind feels that, you know, well, isn't this interesting that all of a sudden you really enjoy black lives and you think that they matter (laughs) and that you're all about being Mm anti-racist, you know, Um, because three weeks ago when I was tweeting about, you know, X, Y, and Z organization or this VC fund that's investing in black women or black entrepreneurs, you know, it was kind of crickets from everybody. Like, you know, (laughs) Yeah. And all of a sudden, those are those are the ones that are getting retweeted and liked and mm. all the rest of it. That's that's interesting. What a what a turnaround. <laughs> interesting. Um, and by interesting, I mean annoying. Absolutely. Uh, to, be, to be clear, <laughs> we get it. We get it. <laughs> uh, and then you know, on the other side, because I admit I am an eternal optimist. Mm. Um, and the diplomat in me, I suppose, is still alive and well. On the other side, I think to myself, you know, Nadia, just like with everything else in life, and I sometimes think about my daughter Mm. um, and how I relate to her, you do have to meet people where they are. Mm. Um, And if, if 
and it's a big if. <laughs> mm. If you hiring an ad agency and starting to learn today about what it what it ha- what the experiences of black people in the workplace have been like mm. um and you are you know all of a sudden granted shocked and appalled mm. if mm. that leads you to real change if that leads you to actually reach out beyond instagram and twitter and all the rest of it to the black employees in your organization mm. if it leads you to develop a real concrete plan about how one year from today one year from your instagram campaign mm-hmm. <laughs> how your boardrooms and your executive tables and more importantly your decision making forums mm. in your organization are going to look different right than they do today then listen i am all for the campaign mm. i'm all for the campaign i'm all for you hiring that ad agency i'm all for you tweeting about the book that you read that you know moved you to pieces and to tears <laughs> all, all for it if it is actually going to shake you into doing something that one year from now you're going to look to your left and look to your right around your leadership table and your decision making tables and the people that you see are going to look different than you. Mm. And I think that, you know, in order to do that, let's not pretend that it's going to be anything but hard work, mm. courage, and uncomfortable conversations mm. and uncomfortable action. Because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here today, right? right. If it was easy. Mm. And if it happens organically and naturally, then we wouldn't be having this conversation you and I today. Yeah. We wouldn't be seeing the Instagram campaigns and the Twitter campaigns and the LinkedIn posts. Mm. The point is that it is uncomfortable and that is okay. Um and I also think and you know this might be an unpopular opinion, I also think that it is okay for organizations to take four steps, five steps forward and one step back. Mm. You know, I I don't think it's going to be a linear upward trend from now until, you know, we get it right. I think that there will be pushes and pulls and there there will be backsliding. Absolutely. And and that is part of the process. Mm. And as leaders, the best thing that you can do is acknowledge that up front, acknowledge that it will be difficult, acknowledge that it's going to be uncomfortable, that you will need help. Um, and that it will not be completely linear and commit to doing it anyway. Mm. Commit today to pushing through even when it gets uncomfortable, even when, you know, that person who's been your, you know, your right hand person up until now and your confidant up until now whispers in your ear, okay, I think that's enough now, you know, Mm. I think, you know, commit to pushing through that backsliding Mm. um to me that is the number one thing that that leaders can do because i think that that's why we haven't made much progress Mm. um in the in the past several years um and decades because i think that people have very good intentions and all the plans and then things get hard Mm. 
and it's easy to stop doing something when it gets hard. We right. all know that, right. you know, that's, that's a, that's a human nature thing. Mm. Um, so I really do my hope and my dream for leaders is that they, they really commit to pushing through the difficult conversations and the uncomfortableness, mm. um, and, and, and really commit to working through it step by step mm. until we get it right. Absolutely. And I think this is so important because, you know, whenever we talk about social discourse, you know, um, there's always this knee-jerk reaction to either run away (laughs) from the conversations or to just have very hot and volatile conversations, right? And I think it's such a... I think that a mistake that so many of us have made in in this type of space and in these types of conversations is thinking that there's an either or approach to it. Like there's one way to get to the promised land when there's so many different, you know, parts to it. And there's so many, yes, there will be space for anger, frustration. Yes, there will be space for discomfort, but we need to embrace that because that's the only time you know that you actually are having the right conversations and you're dealing with the real issues. Um, you know, with everything that's been happening with Black Lives Matter um, and then, of course, gender-based violence, you know, some questions that people have been asking is, okay, uh, it's all important, but I don't know what to focus on. You know, people are feeling so overwhelmed with everything happening at the same time whilst also still worrying about their health because of the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and so, you know, and some people will think, okay, well, you know, if I, I, I want to, you know, be an activist of some sort because I really believe in these issues, but I can't go to marches. Um, I, I either don't have the means or it's just not my thing. Um, and so I feel like I failed, you know, I feel like I'm not contributing, but there's so many different ways in which we can actually be a part of the solution. So how is, how can people... Um, and and I guess people in communities, the you know everyday people and people who are in public service, begin to bridge the gaps. You know when we are speaking about developing policies, you know advancing equality and justice, how can we do that in a way that is meaningful and sustainable? Yeah, I let me just say that I love what you said around the fact that there are many different ways, there's no one path to the promised land. Mm. And, you know, I often say to people in that vein that it's also realizing that everybody, there are different roles Mm. that need to be played in this path, in this struggle towards where we're getting to. And every role looks different. Mm. And the different roles might never even see each other or touch each other, but they Mm. are all important. They all are are galvanizing us towards the same goal. So whether you are an activist and you're going to marches um, and and you're you're in that space, whether you are a public servant and you are quietly pushing people in the back rooms to do something differently, whether you're an entrepreneur or a businesswoman and you are creating generational wealth mm. for your family and for your community, um, all of that matters and all of it is important. Mm. 
Um, and, and I just, I really think that we can very quickly, you know, we live in this cancel culture now, right? Yeah. So that if somebody doesn't see you doing it the way that they think it should be done, all of a sudden, like you said, you're a failure or you're not, you know, you're not yes. part of the cause. And, and I think that we have to really be careful about that. Um, because you're right. Not everybody can go to marches, right? Mm. Not every, that's not everybody's jam. Mm. Um, and that's not the way that they are most effective. Um, you know, if you want more, more black people in executive leadership positions and, and, and around boardrooms, well, then we need them in executive positions and around boardrooms, (laughs) not, you know, not necessarily at marches, right? We, 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 we need all of those people. And I think that that's, um, I think that that's really, really important. Um, and now I've forgotten the question that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> what you said really, it really resonated with me. And well, I'm so glad. <laughs> so the question was around bridging the gap between communities and public servants, you know, uh, when we are talking about advancing equality and justice um, and the development of policies, you know, because there's a, there's an institutional yeah. layer to dealing with these issues, but then there's a structural layers as well. Yeah. You know, to me, that is one of the hardest nuts that we still have to crack, right? Like, how do we actually bring in community into our policy making processes? And, you know, governments around the world for, for decades and decades have been trying to do mm. this with consultations and with roundtable groups and with focus groups, etc. But to me, it's a little bit more um, nuanced than that, and maybe a little bit more complicated. Because for me, in order to develop policy and in order to really sort of start to chip away at the structural racism that is really the cause of where we are today Mm. it requires policymakers to really be um to really take great care at understanding what their communities actually look like Mm. so that is as well for some people as boring for me it's kind of interesting but as boring as making sure that you are collecting data Mm. real data around what your communities look like. And then, you know, in the wake of COVID-19, there's been a lot of talk about the importance of collecting race-based data um, and in in addition to collecting data around um, um, gender and wealth gaps in Mm. the community and how different groups are being affected differently by by, by a COVID, Mm. because of COVID-19. And to me, that discussion is a microcosm of all policy discussions that we have to have. Mm. If you don't actually know what your community looks like, if you don't actually know who it is that you are trying to help and what they are actually facing in terms of barriers, Mm. how can you set up a structure that's going to include them and that's going to try and help move them forward? Mm. Um, And so for me as policymakers, we really do need to do a better job of figuring that out Mm. Um, and then bringing in those voices into the creation of 
not just the policy, but even the structure around mm. how we're building the policy, mm. right? From the very beginning, when we start to think about how we're going to create a certain policy, um, reaching out to those community members um, who are people, right? Mm. I mean, we kind of use these buzzwords like community members, you know, reaching out to the people mm. who are being affected, listening to them, uh, and, and really trying to figure out what structure is going to best address whatever issue it is that you're trying to solve. Mm. Um, and I think that COVID-19 and the work that we're doing, certainly um, in Canada, but I think all around the world and trying to figure out how to move towards recovery um, from COVID-19 can help, help us in that regard, mm. right? And we can learn lessons from that, especially around the collection of race-based data um, we can learn lessons from that that we can apply to other areas of policy. Mm. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, some very, very valid points there. And I think, I mean, just thinking about it in the context of South Africa, you know, so many people even if they want to, you know, engage with government, don't even know how to go about it, you know, don't know where to even begin. Um, so I think that that's certainly something that many of us could really start thinking about um, and start probably act, playing a more active role um, in the process. Um, so coronavirus, exactly. and, oh, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. No, you know, I was going to say, you know, that's a really good point. And what I, what I sometimes remind um, the senior leadership in my organizations mm to do is to remember that it's also their responsibility to reach out. Mm. Um, and that doesn't have to be, you know, going to community group sessions and having round tables, you know, social media now, actually, yes. I say to all the senior leaders, if you don't have social media accounts, and you aren't actually on social media with a view to actually learning about how your stakeholders really feel about mm. the issues that you deal with mm -hmm. on a daily basis, you're mm. not doing it right. Um, you know, that is one way that senior leadership, that policymakers can actually have another view, another window into the communities that they serve. Mm -hmm. Of course, not everybody is on social media. Mm -hmm. um, 100%, I get that. Um, but I do think that it's a great tool for, for, for policymakers to get out of their bubble mm. because i feel like the for policymakers their bubble is the same people that engage like you said the same you know it's always the yes. same people that understand how to engage with government mm. how to get on that round table discussion exactly and how to find themselves as part of the focus group mm. and so being a little bit more intentional about finding different ways to engage with different types of people as policymakers um, is also a very good idea and our responsibility. Absolutely. So the coronavirus has kind of thrown everyone into a, a tailspin, you know. Um, it's something that n nobody could have ever anticipated. Um, but it's also been a very interesting time in you know, for those of us who spend time watching how leaders respond to crises. <laughs> What have some of the key lessons been for you during this time as a leader? You know, my number one lesson has been empathy. Mm. 
that is the number one thing that I remind myself every day, multiple times a day mm. to remember the power of empathy, the mm. power of when leading a team, remembering to put yourself or imagine yourself in that the other person's shoes right. even if they are sh they are shoes that you would never even dream or want to be in frankly mm. right mm. um and for me that has really allowed me to in a period that is so uncertain where everybody has you know different views on how and when we should go back to work in the office mm. um and you know what we should be wearing on our faces or not um mm. and you know who who should be mandated to do what uh in terms of protection all of those things as a leader is difficult to navigate right i mean right. because at the end of the day you're responsible for all of your people mm. and you're also as a leader responsible for bringing people together mm. and i think that empathy plays a big role in that um and it and 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 it also has reminded me that i have to have a little bit of empathy for myself mm. <laughs> a little bit of um understanding and to cut my own self a little bit of slack i am also a person mm. yes i'm a leader but i'm also a person yeah. um i'm also a person with a family um with my own worries and anxieties around uh a pandemic mm. um and i think that as leaders we we have to remember that we are actually not superhuman mm. um that we will make mistakes just like everybody else and mm. being able to admit that when it happens um and seek help ask for help willingly and openly mm. uh and take it when it's given yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the trick right you can't just ask for it you actually have to take the help and the advice when it's given yes, um, is so important. It's really, really important. And I have learned that in spades um, at, during this time. And, you know, the other thing that I would say, and I think that this is especially important for black women is to remember to have a little bit of joy in mm. your life every day. Um, there was this great quote that I now say to myself multiple times a day, joy is resistance absolutely and you know i think as black women especially we get so worried and bogged down with everything it is that we need to do and be in the world mm. that we forget to have joy in our lives mm. to be happy to smile to laugh to do something that you enjoy mm. um and so i think that that has also been important to me as i guide myself and my team through covid 19. Mm, absolutely that's so yeah that that yeah i felt that <laughs> um and i think you know it's such a it's such an important thing to speak about empathy um amongst leaders because you know in order for you to be able to empathize with others you need to show up authentically as yourself as a leader you know um and in so doing you then are able to create space and hold space for other people to be able to do the same because they see that it's safe for them to do so it's safe for them to show up as as themselves you know um, in whatever form that that may take and I think it's such a critical conversation to have right now because 
you know, we are, we've all kind of been forced to reflect and to stop and to rethink the way that we've been working for all of these decades and centuries. Um, and for so many years, people have been, and particularly black women, have been made to believe that, you know, you cannot, you've got to leave your humanity at the door when you walk into the workplace. No feelings, no emotions, no personal issues, no nothing. You just show up and you outperform everyone um, because only then are you valuable. And I think that this conversation around empathy is critically important to start changing that narrative. 100%. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I really think that, you know, the weight of having to show up every day and outperform everybody, as you said, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretending that you have no issues when others around you are able to come with their issues, yep. right? We've all seen it. Yep. Um, you know, and come with their preconceived notions and issues around things that are directly related to you and who you are as a person, as a black woman, Mm -hmm. Um, yet you are not able to come with any of that. It really does take a toll. Um, And yes, and that's why for me, empathy, not just around COVID-19, but generally Mm -hmm. in, in the workplace is so important because it is to me, a universal truth Mm -hmm. around how to lead and be a leader Mm. um, and be a good leader. It's a universal truth that you must have empathy. You must be able to actually see the people who you are working with and who are working for you as themselves Mm. in all that that entails. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that's actually just such a perfect way to end off our conversation definitely something for all of us to really think about and think about you know how do we then bring that into practice in the various spaces that we uh, find ourselves in thank you so so much for having this conversation with me today um it's been beautiful i've been dying to have a chat with you because I absolutely love everything that I have seen you to stand for and you know I just I'm so hopeful for what we will be able to all achieve collectively as we continue to press on um in this in this in this battle um but I know that eventually we will win <laughs> it will take some time but we'll get there Listen, uh, we will win we will win and I have been dying ever since I I I read your book um we are the ones we need. I've been dying to have this conversation with you. So I am so pleased that we made it happen. <laughs> and I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. Thank you so, so, so much. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Workplace Revolution with me, Sikhe Polani. I'll see you again next time.